0: And as we get there uh, this morning, we are going to kind of enter into this next uh, section. In 1 John chapter 2, if you remember, we saw that we are a part of the family of God and uh, that there are enemies that are both within and without that will battle and try to keep us from enjoying the blessings of the family. Now in chapter 3, John's going to begin speaking of and uh, looking at the blessings that are available in the family of God. And the first one of those blessings that we're going to see is the blessing of belonging. The blessing of belonging. What a blessing to have a place that we belong. Amen? And a place that we belong being in the family of God. Stand with me, if you will, this morning as we read just one verse today. 1 John chapter 3 and beginning in verse number 1. It says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Father, I pray that you would speak to us from this verse today. I pray that you would give us uh, the understanding that we need. And in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Once someone is born, they can... Never be unborn out of the family into which they were born. Amen? It's a good thing. What a blessing to be able to know that. You may have heard of situations or know of situations where uh, somebody said that they would disown their child and what a uh, bad thing that is when that comes to a place like that. But the reality is this, even if someone disowns that child, that child that was born into their family is still their child. And uh, they may not want to claim them or whatever it is, but that blood, that uh, relationship that is there, is still there. That person was still born into that family and can never really fully be removed. But I'm glad this morning we have a God who will never even try to disown, who will never say, I no longer know you, I no longer have a relationship with you. But we have a God that uh, gives us the promise that once we are in the family, that we are permanently in the family. Now we understand this morning we can uh, still sin, and when that sin comes, that the fellowship can be broken, but the relationship cannot be broken. And so we understand there's still uh, repenting of sin and getting those things right. It's not a license to sin, uh, but what it does do is it says at least I know that I'm still in the family and that I am indeed still the child of God. As we enter into chapter 3 then, John is going to uh, reveal some of these inner workings of that family into which you've been born, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior. Uh, Really the understanding for us of what takes place in the family and what holds the family together. I wonder this morning, are you experiencing the blessings of the family? Or have you been fooled by the enemy into walking away from the inner workings of the family of God, for into really going and uh, allowing yourself to miss out on the great blessings? I came across this article. It was written in 2018. And this lady, Miss Guma or Guma, she went to a, uh, a session and a series of sessions of some kind of a conference. And really, what they were talking about was veterans and some of the struggles that there are for veterans trying to come back into normal life and uh, things of that nature. And and uh, in the article, she calls the man who was speaking for the most part Colonel O. And uh, so I'll just stick with that. Uh, he was a Vietnam veteran and he was a chaplain. And uh, in his address that he gave on that particular day, he gave a series of reasons that many veterans struggle to really kind of fit back into society, to find a place of belonging, as it were. Number one, he said that in the military, there is a sense of purpose. He said in the military, when someone has that sense of purpose, they go to work every day, they know what their job is, they have a job, they have a duty, and not only that... They understand the importance of that job. And so they go, and it gives them purpose to life. It gives them a reason. It gives them a motivation to go forward. And they know that if they do not carry out their job, that it will affect those that are around them, and those others who need to be able to carry out their jobs won't be able to if I don't get my job done in a right manner. He said, number one, the military life is a life Of purpose, He said, number two, the military life is a life of community or a life of belonging. He said there's a sense there in which uh, that community works together and they labor together. And he said that these soldiers, they knew who they were and where they stood with others in their command or in their community when they were in the military. So he said the hard part or one of the hard parts of coming out of the military is that this person comes into a life where they don't have that same sense of who they are. And they don't have the same sense of where they stand with others. And they don't have the same sense of exactly what those relationships are, and they lose that sense of belonging oftentimes. He so said when they come out of the military, they can lose a sense of purpose. They can lose a sense of belonging. But then number three, he said that there is in the military a sense of intimacy. He explained how soldiers not only knew the members of their command or their community, but how they stood by each other. And they supported one another. And through the most difficult of circumstances, they may not always see everything eye to eye, but there was a certain support that was there. There was a certain recognition that, uh, you know, this weekend or uh, next week or next month or certainly in the next year, I could be in the foxhole with this man next to me. And, and we have a sense of relying on one another, that they would watch one another's back, they would care for one another, that there was a, a sense of caring, a sense of intimacy. Colonel O oh noted that after the soldiers left the service, they generally did not feel this sense of community any longer. He said that is really one of the greatest uh, things that, that hurts and damages and is hard for many of these soldiers, and that's why they have a hard time adjusting to normal life. Colonel O oh said this is when the, uh, when the dilemma of where do you belong when you no longer belong begins to set in. And he said these men who have served, and and women who have served in the United States military, they start to wonder, where do I fit when I no longer fit anywhere? And because they can't find the answer to that in themselves, they often begin to have an emptiness and they begin to look to alcohol or to drugs or things of that nature. And and he said this is really the great need, is there must be somewhere for that person to fit. He said the soldier feels lost without the sense of values given to them and lost because what they believe is not what others believe. And I started thinking about that and I thought, you know, a Christian is not so far different. You know, a Christian, we go out into the world around us and we find that what we believe, when we bring it back to the Word of God, is just not exactly what others believe. We find that we need a place of belonging, but the Bible tells us that we are aliens, that we are strangers here in this world. This world is not our place of belonging. But you know, we have a God in heaven who understood the need for community, the need for relationship, the need to belong. And so he created on this earth a little piece of heaven called the church. And he gave us a place to be able to fit, a place to be able to belong, a place to be able to come together and, and find a community of believers who we believe the same thing. Oh, we don't always see everything the same way. And we don't always uh, agree with exactly how we might do this or do that. And we might see some things that we say, you know, that's not my preference. But, but in reality, we believe some certain things. We believe that Jesus is God, we believe that the Bible is reliable. I figured there'd be some amens on that. Uh, We believe the Bible's reliable. We believe that uh, the the reality is there's only one way to heaven and that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can come to the Father except through through him. We believe certain things, and, and we find that when we come together, we can lay aside the preferential differences so that we find a place of belonging. But you know, really, that only works one way. The only way that it works is when we understand the love of our God. Because you see, our belonging is not found in the opinions of others. Our belonging, our working together as a church family, it is not found in uh, merely how we see this or how we feel about that. It is not found in the ability to be able to get everybody to do the same and act the same and dress the same and think the same all the time. This Colonel O said, it is at this time when the soldier realizes they don't believe what others believe, it is at this time when the soldier feels very lonely and isolated. This person said, after hearing Colonel O speak, it became evident how every person would benefit from being embraced by the community in which they live in the manner the armed forces embraces their soldiers. You know, I read that and I thought, that's very interesting, and especially a day like this where we're honoring veterans and the great need that those men have and women have as they come out of the armed forces and that they have served so faithfully, they've served so well, and and oftentimes that sense of belonging is stripped away, that sense of purpose, that sense of unity, uh, it can be lost, that sense of laboring together with someone. And I began to think as uh, this author who, uh, from what I could tell, I wasn't really looking uh, too very deep but from what I could tell there wasn't anything uh, even religious inside of this article it was not from the perspective of a Christian looking at it but I thought you know the reality is even the unsaved world around us can see there's a need to have a sense of belonging there's a need to have a place of relationship there's a need for real true genuine love in the life of every person we come here to first John chapter three And John is writing to these believers, and he's saying to them, as he has come through chapter two, you know what, we have a family we're a part of, and he's told us that we're born into that family, and and he says, you've been born there, and and, and now here's some enemies that are out there, they're going to try to lure you away from the Father, the Heavenly Father, they're going to try to get you to miss out on the blessings of the family, but, and here's where we are now, in John's uh, writing to these people, but the blessings are wonderful. Man, the blessings of the family are great. The blessings of the family are well worth whatever it takes to stay close to the Father. And the first one of those blessings is that in the Father we find a place of belonging. You know why we belong in a church, why we can fit together and work together in spite of all of our differences in a church like this? It's because our sense of belonging is not even found in the church itself. It's found... In the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our belonging. He is our place. He is the one. And it tells us here, behold, think on, dwell on, look at, behold, what manner of love. You know why we have a place of belonging? Because we have a God who has an incredible love beyond all that we could ever imagine. And because of the love of our God, we have a place to belong. And then we get to come together and it's not about who thinks this or who thinks that or who agrees here or who uh, looks at this this way. You know what it really becomes? We're just brothers and sisters. And we fit and we belong because we have something in common. That's who our dad is, our heavenly father, our place of belonging. That's what John's gonna tell these believers. That's what he wants them to understand here in verse number 1 of this chapter as we enter into chapter number 3, the blessings of the family. I want you to notice with me today the place of belonging which is created by the love of God. First of all, I see the manner of God's love. What is this manner that he speaks of? He says, behold, what manner? Uh, the, The idea here is behold the way in which God loves. And so he is telling us there's a manner to it. There's a way to it. And there are some things about it that we can look at and probably there's a hundred different perspectives that we could come from this morning to behold the manner of God's love. If we were to talk about it all day and all night, we wouldn't scratch the surface. We understand we couldn't uh, write of his love without filling all of the world with the books John would tell us And, and the reality is all that he's done and all of his love and all that he is, there's no way we can fully comprehend this love that God has for us. But he tells us to look at it. He tells us to dwell on it. He tells us to think about it. And so there is a sense in which we can behold this manner of love. So I just want to give you four thoughts this morning. And you can go home and put down the other 7,382 you come up with this afternoon. Number one, the manner of God's love, it is an eternal love. His manner, his way in which he loves is eternally. Aren't you glad that the Bible tells us that before eternity passed ever, uh, before time ever began in eternity past, that God the Father had already decided that He would love? What an incredible reality! That before he ever created Adam and Eve, he already knew that his son would have to go to the cross and that Jesus would come and take on the form of man and become a man. Not just a form, but he would become man and be 100% God, yet 100% man. And that he, as the God-man, the representative of the whole human race, would go to that cross and die. He already knew it, but he'd already chosen the love. It's an eternal love. It's an incredible love. Not only was it eternal in eternity past, but it's eternal as we look forward to eternity future. Aren't you glad we don't have to worry about someday in about a million years when we're sitting in heaven? Maybe something happening and God saying, you know, I'm not very pleased with that. I think I'll just go ahead and kick you out of my sight. (laughs) Aren't you glad we don't have to worry about that? We'll never get to the place, and by the way, we fail so often in this life. We have so much that we fall short of the glory of God as believers even that as far as our outward living and living out the word and the will of God in our lives, we fall so short. Wouldn't it be easy, humanly speaking, for our God to look and say, you know, you just keep failing and failing and failing, I'm done with you. And by the way, let me just say this for someone who might be discouraged already this morning, The reality of that is that probably would be even more true for those who have been saved longest and those who think that they are the most mature. Because the more that we grow in Christ, the more that we know and the more we're responsible for. And the easier it seems as though anyway, humanly speaking, that it would be for God to look and say, you know what? You know better. I mean, the brand new Christian over here, I can understand God saying, hey, they've been saved for five minutes. I'll be a little bit gracious there. They don't know yet, but you've been saved for 25, 30, 40, 50, 80 years. I mean, you know better. Come on, do it right. Wouldn't it seem humanly that that's how we would handle it? Hey, I've given you 40 years of grace. It's about time you get things straightened up. But aren't you glad God doesn't? Aren't you glad he says his salvation is for eternity? His love is for, for eternity. And aren't you glad when we fail, and fail, and fail, every time we come back, that God is waiting with open arms, every time that we return, that he says, I'll take that sin, and I'll wash it away, and I'll wash it with the blood, I'll put it as far as the east is from the west, I'll put it in the depth of the sea of God's forgetfulness, it will never again be brought up, it will never again uh, be remembered or be there, it's an incredible thing that God has the ability to truly forget those things. He can because he's God. We remember him. We come back and we say, Lord, I know I just was dealing with this. We come back sometimes and we say, Lord, I know I've been here over and over and over and over for the same thing and I keep struggling in the same area. Lord, would you forgive me again? And the reality is that God doesn't see and look and say, well, but you just failed in this yesterday and the day before and the day before. I don't know if I can keep forgiving. But every time we come, he washes it clean and no longer remembers What an incredible God. We have a God who his love is an eternal love. Not only that, his love is an expressive love. His love was expressed on the cross. We'll get to that a little more in a moment. His love is expressed in his words. He cared enough to inspire the word of God and to give us the word of God to have the understanding of the love of God. He has expressed his love. You know, a love that is not expressed is not a love that's worth much. Amen? Amen. Every now and then, uh, and I've probably heard about this more than heard it, but every now and then someone will say something to the effect of, well, I told my wife that I loved her the day we got married. If it ever changes, I'll let her know. Now, If that's your philosophy, it's a bad philosophy, amen? Just trying to help you out a little bit. But uh, the reality is that a wife wants to hear her husband regularly express his love. He ought to be constantly, consistently finding different, new, unique ways. I know I'm setting you up, man. But we ought to be finding new and unique ways uh, all the way through our relationship to say, I love you, I care about you, I want you to know the love that I have for you. Sometimes it's as simple as just a text that says, hey, I'm gonna be home a little bit late. This is what's happening and this is where I am. Uh, Sometimes it's just that she knows what's going on in life. Sometimes it's as much as bringing home flowers, even though they'll die tomorrow. And uh, just making sure that she knows you were thought about today. Sometimes it's something totally different. And the reality is, We need to be expressing our love. How wonderful we have a God who expresses his love. He doesn't just say, I love you, I'll let you know if it ever changes. By the way, the cross is enough, amen? The fact that he died, that he was buried, that he rose again and he offers eternal life, if if it stopped there, if that was all he ever did and there was never another blessing than eternal life, that's enough to know that he loves us for all of eternity. And yet, on a regular basis, God meets with us and through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the word of God, he speaks to us. God has a relationship that is real. He speaks to us through his word. We speak to him in prayer. It's a two-way communication. He allows us to have a deep abiding relationship with him and he's willing to abide and dwell with us and spend time with us. Our God wants a real, genuine relationship, not a religious idea of making some outward change, but a relationship between us and him. He expresses his love. What a God to have a love that is eternal. What a God to have a love that is expressive. And then not only that, it is an enhanced love. By the very fact that it is God's love, it is enhanced beyond what human love ever could be. His love is enhanced uh, beyond what we ever could begin to express. He's expressed throughout all of eternity. I'm going to move fast there for the sake of time, but it is an enhanced love. And then not only that, it's an enduring love. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8, what can separate us from the love of God? Incredible, incredible thought. Not even all the problems of this world, and he goes through some of those, and the persecutions, and the, uh, the famines, and all these things, and what he's really saying is there's no problem we can encounter in this world that is greater or more powerful than the love of our God. God is a great God. God has a great love. And so here John writes to these believers, and he says, listen, the love of God is stronger, the love of God is greater, the love of God is bigger than anything else you can come up with. So when you need to figure out where do I belong and how do I go forward and how do I deal with these things and by the way, these are a people who are oppressed and these are a people who are probably dealing with some, uh, we think in our society we have such stress and anxiety and certainly it's a problem, but I don't think it was not a problem then, amen? He writes to these people with all the anxieties of life at this time and all the stresses of life at this time. He says to him, behold, it just come back to that man of the love of your God. You know what that does? When we start dwelling on his love, it destroys anxiety. How can I be anxious? After all, look at how great just his love is. Think what his power must be. I mean, just look at how great his love is. How is he going to do anything that's for the purpose of hurting me? Oh, there might be times that there's some, some pain. There might be times there's some problems but it's because he loves me. And he loves me enough to bring me to the place that I need to come to in growth. And he knows ultimately it's for my good. Even the challenges, even the hardship, even the hardening. So I don't have to be stressed and I don't have to be anxious. I can come back in those times and I can behold the manner of his love. Are you stressed today. Are you anxious? Are you dealing with the anxieties of life and having a hard time keeping your mind from running on those? Can I say to you, if you'll just take some time and sit down and write out those 7,382 other things that you can come up with about the love of God, if you'll dwell on his love for a while, if you'll behold the manner of his love, and what we find is all of a sudden we're so caught up in his love that our mind's not racing on all those other things. Our mind is racing on, look how great God is. And look how much he loves me. It answers some of the basic problems of life. He tells them, behold, the manner of his love. And and so I see the manner here of God's love. And then secondly, I see the modeling, or I think about the modeling of God's love. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, he says, that we should be called the sons of God. He says in verse number two, beloved, now are we the sons of God? And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We know Jesus is the one who's going to appear. We know Jesus is the one who came and became man so that he could die in our place. And we see here this modeling of the love of God. Behold what manner of love. But notice what he says, the Father hath bestowed. So it's not just that he has that manner of love. It's not just that he does love, but it's a love that is not only said, expressed, but it's a love that is a bestowing love. There's action to it. There is labor to it. Uh, If I just simply tell my wife that I, uh, when we were dating, if I had just simply told her that I loved her, but I'd never put a ring on her finger, eventually she'd have gone and found somebody else that loved her enough to put a ring on her finger, amen? There needed to be some action somewhere along the line. And the reality of it is, any real, true, genuine love requires bestowing. It requires gift. It requires action. It requires work that is put into that relationship of love. What an incredible bestowing of his love that we have on us. What an incredible reality that God would come to this earth. That God would become man. A lot of men have been trying to figure out for all really all down through history all the way back to Adam and Eve. Man has been trying to figure out how to become God. Eve partook of the fruit because uh, Satan said, well, uh, God's in essence, he said, God's holding out on you, Eve. You could be like God. Hey, Eve, you yourself could know those things. You yourself could be filled with wisdom. You yourself. I mean, God is holding out. You could be like him. And Eve wanted to be like a God herself. And so she partook of the fruit. That was the lie. And throughout history, man's been trying to figure out, how do I become God? And yet the God of heaven that I'm willing to leave the throne of heaven to become man. You know, that alone was an incredible sacrifice. If all he had done was left the throne of heaven to come and live amongst us and, and to, for a time, restrict the, the power of his deity to a certain extent, for a time to live as a man in this world among us, that alone is a sacrifice enough to show that it's an incredible love. And yet he went so much further. I can't imagine being spat upon by your own creation. And yet Jesus allowed those soldiers as they came in to spit upon him. Pilate said, don't you know that your life is in my hands? I have the power to let you live or to die. He said to him, remember, you wouldn't have any power except for it was given to you from God. my father's the one who's in control of all this. By the way, if you're worried about our nation right now, just remember the same thing applies. Our God is the one who's in control of all this. He said, just remember, Pilate, you don't have any power except for what's given to you from heaven. The reality is he came in there and, and I think often about, and especially around Easter time as we think through the story, but I think often as I think of the crucifixion story of how they blindfolded him, and it says that they hit him with the hand. That means they didn't have a bald fist that they were punching him. They smacked him with the open hand. That was the sign of ultimate rebuke, the sign of uh, of really just having no respect at all for someone. And and that's why it's so clear there in the scripture that that's the way in which those soldiers hit him, because they came and and certainly they beat the uh, thorns down into his brow with that reed. And so it wasn't that they did not hit him with anything else, but in that moment as they came, they used the open hand to smack him across the face, and in essence that was the way, and it's not right, but just so you understand culturally, that was the way that a man would slap his wife. Wife. And in essence, uh, in a Roman home, and that would be a normal thing in a Roman home, oftentimes, and, and in the same manner, what it was saying was, "I'm treating you like you're of no value, like you're just of no worth. You're like a woman in a Roman home was seen." By the way, a lot of people say that the Bible is a male chauvinist book. Can I just say the Bible's the one that first gave place to women. <laughs> And God is the one who created and gives place there. And he gives care for women. And the reality is there's no greater place of care than in the word of God, than the Lord himself. But that's a side note. And so that was the thought of the day, though. And I say this for that reason. The thought of the day was women are of no value. In fact, oftentimes, children were of no value. Many times, a Roman uh, soldier would, or or really any Roman man, it was up to him whether or not those children would live or die. And so if a a daughter was born, they saw that as being pointless, valueless, and so they would just throw her out on a cliff somewhere and just let her die from exposure. It was a, a despicable culture, not too far different from ours, but despicable culture. And the reality is that uh, they, they wanted that son. And so they would wait until that son was born oftentimes. And, and, and all those kind of things would happen. The picture of then of them smacking him with the open hand. To say, we have no respect for you. We don't think you're any kind of a king. Look how powerless, look how weak, look how pathetic you are. And then they began to say, you said you're God. Come on, Jesus. Come on, God. If you're really God, and they believed in a plethora of gods, so if you're a God, why don't you tell us who's hitting you? Any God would be able to do that. They would take turns coming and smacking him with that open hand. And you know, I always wonder when I think about that story, what would they have done if he'd have started just naming them all just right? They probably would have said, well, we need to tighten his blindfold a little bit. And that still didn't work. But as a lamb before his shears is done... He opened not his mouth. He could have answered every question. He could have given the rebuke and the responses. As he stood before Herod, really is where that that passage is fulfilled, and he could have answered Herod anything he chose. Herod wanted to hear from him. But Herod had killed John the Baptist, he wouldn't even give him the honor of speaking to him. And Jesus was in such perfect control of the whole thing because he was God, that at the moment that Peter denied him that third time, He was in the right spot to turn and look at it. He was in absolute control of everything. And it all seemed to be swirling, and yet he was in control of it. Behold what manner of love that he, God, has bestowed upon us. Behold the way that Jesus, as God, came from heaven to this earth so that the love of God could be bestowed upon every person. Everyone who would receive him as their savior. Behold, the way that he came and was beaten to the point the Bible tells us, he no longer looked like a man. The doctors tell us that perhaps if it was not for all the blood and and the gore that you would have been able to see in places perhaps through his body because it was so destroyed. Behold the man who came and died in a manner that no other could have because they could not have even survived the beating, uh, I believe. And then who took that crossbeam of the cross upon his back and started to climb the hill of Golgotha and it slammed down on his back. And they made Joseph carry it up the rest of the way uh, of Arimathea and put it there on that cross beam. And, and behold this man who went through all of that. Behold this man who took so much on himself, all the beating and all of the agony and all of the mockery, and he took it all because he loved you and because he loved me. And then we imagine as they get to the top of that hill and fling him down on that cross and nail his hands and nail his feet, hanging him up there and probably the style of a cross that would have had a very long crossbeam because of the weight uh, several feet and that they would put it at the edge of the hole and usually step back and allow it to free fall some three or four feet before all the weight of the cross as well as the person, typically four or five hundred pounds perhaps, would come to a slamming halt when the end of the cross would hit the bottom of that hole. We figure that's probably what it was because the Bible tells us his joints were ripped out of joint and that's what that would often do. He hung there for that time on the cross. And as he hung, remember his words, his words of forgiveness. Why? Because he loved you and because he loved me. The reality of it is there is no greater love. Jesus said there's no greater love than the man laid down his life for his friends. He laid down his life in the most intense, most dramatic manner, that anyone has ever been able to. What an incredible love of the Father. You know, I'm thankful for the United States soldier. I'm thankful for those who have served in so many capacities. I'm thankful that they were willing to, we saw on the the video, the, the thought at the end that's so popular, all gave some, some gave all. I'm thankful for those who have laid down their life that others might be free. And what an intense love that is. And every now and then we hear the stories and we hear of these great warriors who have given so much that we might be free. But you know, when they lay down their life, when the American soldier does, it cannot be a blood that is shed that covers the sins of other people. Their love is great. Their love is intense. But yet in reality, it pales in comparison to the love of our God. And I'm thankful for the soldier but I'm so thankful for the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Behold what manner of love is bestowed upon you. I see this morning John writes to these believers and to us by a way of it being in scripture. And he says this morning, behold the manner of God's love. He says not only that, but think on the modeling of God's love. Jesus is the one who modeled it. Jesus is the one who performed it. Jesus is the one who showed us the way to love. Remember, he loved even those who were his enemies. He loved even those who mocked him. He loved even those who drove the nails through his hands and through his feet. He still loved them with a perfect, intense love. Remember the love that he has. And so I see the manner, I see the modeling. And then number three, I see the matriculation of God's love. Matriculation just means the enrolling or the admitting to membership. But it didn't make sense to say the admitting to membership of God's love, so we have the matriculation of the love of God. What does it do? Bible, the Bible tells us that God's love, because of his love, we can each one become a full, complete member of God's family. And you know what he wants us to do, or wants to do? He wants to bring us into his very own family. Isn't that an amazing thing? The Bible tells us that at one time we are at enmity with Christ in Romans uh, chapter 5. The reality of it is God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, he gave us his love. So God doesn't tell us figure out how to get good and then I'll love you. He tells us I love you and when you receive me as your Savior, I'll help you make the changes you need to in life. Come just as you are. It's an amazing thing. Here's what that passage really tells us. Because we're a sinner, before we know Christ as our Savior, because of that sin nature that is there, and because of the fact I'm a sinner, I am the enemy of God. And God looks at me as his enemy and says, I love you. Enough, I already died for you. And I'm offering to you everlasting life. And now what I want to do is not just wash your sin away, though that's wonderful. It's not just to give you eternal life in heaven, though that's wonderful. But I want to actually bring you into my very own family. I want to bring you in and make you my own child. And I want to treat you as a father who loves his children. And I don't just want you to be a friend. And I don't just want you to be a, a saint in the sense somebody who's, who's saved and doing things for me. But I don't just want you to be a servant, though we serve it. I want you to become my son, my daughter. I want you to become a part. Of my very family. You know, there's three ways you can become a part of a family. Number one, you can be born into that family. That would be the principle of life, that's that which is natural. That which happens uh, just by by way of natural means, typically. And, And so a man and a woman get married, and the typical natural thing that happens is, eventually they have children, and those children, when they are born, become a part of their family. They don't have to do anything to make them a part of their family. They're just born into the family. And you know, the Bible tells us that we are born again, that we are born into the very family of God. What a blessing to be born into his family. That speaks to the fact that we are legitimate. That speaks to the fact we're not just uh, kind of somebody that he loves and wants to treat like a child. Maybe when you were growing up, you had somebody that was like a, a mom to you. Oftentimes people will say, oh, I remember this person. They were, they were like a mom to me. I mean, they weren't my mom. But they were like a mom. Or I remember this person was like a dad to me. They just really took me under their wing and and, and maybe even called that person mom or called that person dad. And in reality, they were just a family friend. What a blessing to have those relationships, amen? But you know, the reality is you still have to kind of explain it because that's not actually your mom or that's not actually your dad. They're really just a friend of the family. And you know, God says, wait a minute, this isn't just we're friends and we're just kind of calling each other this. No, no, no. When you trust Christ as your Savior, then you are actually born into the family of God. You belong. It's a place of belonging. There's no one who belongs any more than you belong. And there's no one. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what your past looks like. There is no one that has any greater sense of belonging than you have. This is a place to belong. And so, number one, the first way that someone might enter a family is by being born into the family. The second way someone might enter a family is by adoption. This would be the principle of law. There's the principle of life, just being born. They're given life, they're a part of the family. But, but on occasion, there is someone who needs to be adopted into a family. And when someone is adopted into a family, and in our family we have twice now gone through that process, and, and they enter our family, they're just as much our children, but there is a difference. They were not born into our family, but by being adopted into our family, it's by law that they're our children. And so there has to be legal documentation. The documents are drawn up. The people sign the documents. And, and what a uh, time, at least the way it works in America, is you're waiting on that uh, birth mother to actually sign that document. And you're holding that baby saying, oh, I hope this goes forward and this will be our child. And, and you're waiting. And, and, and there's a lot of stress in that because you know that this is something that requires a signature. It requires a legal document to be fulfilled. This speaks to legality. Galatians chapter four says, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, God set forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that are under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. Because you are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Here's what he says. There's a time when we are born, when we're born into this world, we're born with a sin nature and we're under law. So we're born into the family of God. That deals with life. But legally, there's a legal side to this. We were the children that were on this other side under law. He actually says in another place, the children of the devil. We were in this family. So there's a legal transaction as well. We're adopted. It moves us legally into the family of our God. We're born into his family, that's life. We are adopted into his family, that deals with law. And it deals with the end of that passage there with the inheritance. In fact, wherever you find adoption, you almost always find inheritance very near. And that's because part of adoption, even in our country today, is that once you've adopted someone into your family, the legality of it is finalized. You can never disinherit that person. And this deals with our inheritance. Our God will never disinherit us. What a love that he has. We can be added by uh, birth. We can be added by adoption. There's a third way you can be added into a family. And that's by marriage. That's the love principle. And aren't you glad God deals with that one as well? The Bible tells us in uh, Revelation chapter 19, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her that uh, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he saith unto me, right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. You know the church is pictured in the Bible as the, the bride that's preparing for wedding day. Jesus is pictured in the Bible as that son who, in familiar way of the, old, uh, of the old into the beginning part of the New Testament, would go home and prepare a place of dwelling and then would come back to receive his bride unto himself when the father would say it's time. The Bible tells us there's going to be a marriage supper one day, the church is going to be invited, that right now the church is to be preparing, getting ready, uh, that we are preparing ourselves for wedding day. You know, a lot of the things in this world just aren't that important. It's important that we're preparing ourselves for wedding day, making sure that we're right before our God. And one day there's a marriage that's going to happen. The marriage supper of the lamb will take place and the church will be united with the the groom, the bridegroom, Jesus himself. He's going to come in the rapture and take his bride unto himself, that where he is, there we may be also. What a joy that'll What a blessing that'll be. The Bible tells us that we can be born into the family of God. It tells us we can be adopted into the family of God. In fact, both of those happen at the moment of salvation. And then it tells us one day, by marriage, we're going to enter into the family of God. We're going to be the bride, and he's going to be the groom. The Bible tells us a story in Matthew 25. I'll close with this story. It says, at midnight, there was a cry made. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. There were ten virgins that they were preparing, ten of them that were getting ready for this wedding party. There was likely the bride, and then these were going to be the bridesmaids, if we were to put it into our vernacular today. And they were all getting ready. They were preparing. They were uh, were getting ready for the moment when the bridegroom would show up and come to get the bride. And, And five of them were wise. They made sure they had enough oil for their lamps. Five of them were unwise, they were a little lazy, they didn't get to the store on time, and, and all of a sudden they said, well, he's probably not coming tonight, but he came tonight. And they looked over and they said, hey, hey, can we borrow some of your oil? And they said, no, I'm sorry, we can't loan you our oil. That oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit of God. By the way, there's no child that can borrow that from their parents. You can't be saved because you were born into a Christian home. There's no way we can give it to our loved ones can't be saved just because they know us. I've had people say, Well, I know I'll go to heaven. My great grandpa was a Baptist preacher. No, I'm sorry, but you can't be saved because you know someone or were related to someone. You have to have your own oil, your own uh, availability of the Holy Spirit of God. That only happens by receiving Jesus as your Savior. So it says that the bridegroom came and. They got ready to go meet him. And it says, Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. They that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you're not. Why is that story in the Bible? It's simply to say this. You have time to receive Jesus as your Savior. But the Bible says now is the appointed time. Today is the day of salvation. Let me just say if you're not sure that you've been born and adopted into the family of God, that you're a part of the bride of Christ, let me just say today is the day to make that decision. Because the reality is he could come tonight. And it'll be too late to have a relationship then. Too late to be able to enter in then. Now is the time to enter the family. And it's not a bad thing. You don't lose all the blessings of life. Rather, you gain a place of belonging and incredible love from the almighty God of the universe. If you're not saved, would you enter the family today? Maybe today you'd say, Pastor, I'm saved. I know I'm saved. No doubt about it. I've received Jesus as my Savior. I know the time I made that decision. That's wonderful. Let me just say to you today, let's not get stressed out about everything going on around us in our world. Let's come back and say, I'm just going to spend my time focusing on the manner of the love of God and the way he's displayed it in this world through himself. Father, we love you. We thank you for this day. We pray now that you'd bless, and in Jesus' name I pray. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed.